0: Let's turn in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Our passage is verses 36 to 39. But we'll begin reading at verse 32 to understand the context. Hebrews 10, verse 32. Enduring faith to preserve the soul. Enduring faith to preserve the soul. Hebrews 10.32 But remember the former days when, after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming shares with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet, in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith." And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we approach you, we ask you to illumine our minds to the understanding of your word, but also give us the strength, the power, the conviction we need to carry this out. Help us, Father, to endure until the very end. Lord, teach us that endurance is necessary, perseverance is necessary, perseverance is necessary because it is our soul. We pray, Lord, that you'll minister to our soul and enable us to understand and carry out what your word says. In Christ's name, amen. Well, at the end of this chapter, chapter 10, the apostle is arguing That we need to look what has already happened to us, but also what will happen to us in the future. He tells us to look at the past, but also to look at the future. He's also encouraging us to do just as others have done, which he will expand uh, in chapter 11. In chapter 11, he's going to tell us that we are not alone. Looking to the past and looking to the future... Don't look at ourselves as being the only ones, or just as a few in number, but there have been many people who have experienced and undergone the same things that we have. This is what he will explain in the next chapter, with a long list of the faithful who believed and obeyed the gospel of Christ throughout the Old Testament. For thousands of years in the Old Testament, he will explain that. So now we turn our attention to verses 36 to 39, where he's going to tell us that in order to obtain, in order to receive, in order to enter into God's eternal kingdom, certain things are necessary. Certain things are necessary of us. Enduring faith to preserve the soul. We need lasting faith. We need faith that perseveres until the end of our life For our souls to be preserved. That means if our souls are going to be preserved, we must have this true faith. This is what he exhorts us here. In verse 36, he says, For you have need of endurance. You have need of endurance. He's not saying it's a wish, he's not saying it's a want, he's saying it is a need, it's a necessity, it's a requirement. There is no compromise on this fact, that endurance is necessary. This is necessary for every saint, for every believer, everyone who belongs to God, every member of the true people of God, the true spiritual people of God, the spiritual Zion, the spiritual Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, whoever belongs to this group, this redeemed group, this chosen group, this group must have enduring faith. There is a need of endurance. Jesus taught this. He said in Luke 21, 19, he said that by your perseverance, you will save your souls. Perseverance is necessary for the soul to be saved. However, there are many people who do not endure. There are many people who fall away, who shrink back, who shrink back to destruction. But that should not describe us. We need to have faith that perseveres, that endures, till the very end. And if we don't endure until the very end, there is no salvation. But it is he who endures till the end who shall be saved. Matthew 24, 13. It is necessary to endure until the end. Now, How is it that we endure? What is it that's necessary? What happens in this intermediate period from the time of conversion until the time of consummation? From the time of conversion until the time we see Christ face to face? He says in 36, what is necessary? He says, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. What is necessary from the time that we are converted, from the time that we believe, truly believe, and truly repent, and put our faith in Christ. What is necessary? What's necessary is doing the will of God. What did we do before our conversion? What did we do when we were unbelievers? What did we do when we pretended with Christianity? What did we do? We did our own will. We walked our own way. We didn't want anybody to tell us what to do. We didn't want our parents to tell us what to do. We didn't want our employers to tell us what to do. We didn't want even God himself to tell us what to do. This is the way we were. This is what what our mentality was. We wanted to be insubordinate. We wanted to disobey whoever because we wanted to do our own whim, our own will. This is the way we were. But then, once God changed our heart, Once he gave us new desires, once he gave us new aspirations, new ambitions, heavenly ambitions, once he did that, immediately there is this desire. We ask the question, I wonder what God thinks of this. I wonder what God wants me to do. I wonder what God's will is for me today. This is what is necessary. The true believer seeks for the will of God. The will of God in every way. The will of God in daily living Even the will of God in minor matters and major matters. Whatever it is, there should be prayer without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17. We should pray without ceasing to seek the will of God. We should also read the Bible, like the righteous man in Psalm 1, day and night. Read and meditate on the Bible day and night. Otherwise, how can we know the will of God? We cannot know the will of God just by going into the forest. We cannot know the will of God by just doing our daily jobs. No, the will of God comes by reading the Bible, by meditating on the Bible, by memorizing the Bible, by discussing the Bible with those who desire the same. This is how we know the will of God. And how important is it to do this will of God? It's extremely important because Jesus said in Matthew 7, In Matthew 7, 21 to 23, Jesus said, and in that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name uh, cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I never knew you. And he says, why? Because they did these things, but they did not do the will of his Father.'" Doing the will of the Father is obedience to his word. Whatever his word says, whatever he expects of us, they did not have a desire to do the will of God. And those who don't have a desire to to do the will of God, Jesus will say on that day of judgment, depart from me, I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness, because you would not do the will of the Father. You would say, Lord, Lord, but not do the will of the Father. In fact, 1 John 2, 17 says, the one who does the will of God abides forever. The one who does the will of God abides forever. Now, to the new believer, to the believer, doing the will of God should be sweetness. It should be pleasant in the sense that There's nothing that we would rather do but to please our Lord and Savior. It may not be pleasant in terms of the actual experience. We might not like what people say to us. We might not like how they frown upon us. We might not like any of that. We might not like, as in this case, they had their possessions seized. People stole their possessions. They plundered and looted their possessions. And they didn't like that. But they did want to do the will of God. So they received it joyfully. They received that persecution joyfully because they wanted to do the will of God. This is what we should desire too. To do his will. Now, to ensure that we not misunderstand what the Apostle is saying, he's not saying that we must do this will to receive what was promised in that it all depends on us that we need to use our own effort apart from the grace of God, apart from the spirit of grace, that it depends on our works for us to be saved from our sins. He doesn't mean that we have to depend on our works to present to God on the day of judgment to be saved from our sins. He does not mean that whatsoever. It's not as though God puts on a scale on the two sides. On the one side is the weight, And on the other side is the produce. He's not saying that if your good deeds are better, doing the will of God, if they are more and heavier than the weight of your sin, then you get into heaven. That's not what he means. He doesn't mean that whatsoever. Let's show that briefly here in this letter. In chapter 6, in chapter 6, verse 3, 6, verse 3, after telling us that we should not be immature people, but mature He says in chapter 6, verse 3, And this we shall do if God permits. We shall grow into maturity if God permits. According to the will of God, we will grow. Those people that he has chosen, he will ensure that they do his will until the very end. Another example is chapter 13. Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13 Verse 20, 13, 20. Now may the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. There, his benediction is for the, the saints, to be equipped in every good thing to do his will. And it is God who works in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ for the glory of God. This is the way it happens. God works in us by the preaching and teaching of the word, by means of prayer, by the agency of the Holy Spirit, in order to quicken us, in order to encourage us, to enliven us, to strengthen us to do the will of God. And God will make sure that we make it until the very end. So it will depend always on the grace of God, from beginning to end, on the grace of God who drives us to do His will. And then what is the outcome? Verse 36, verse 36 says, That you may receive what was promised. That you may receive what was promised. Right now, we receive the promise in the sense that we believe it. And we are converted. We are in the body of the faithful. We are in the body of Christ. Right now, we receive it in that way. But here, he means receive it in the full sense. Receive it in the eternal sense. Receive it in the fully experiential sense. On the day that Christ returns or on the day of resurrection, on that last day, that's when our eternal state begins. We will no longer be susceptible to the evils of this life. Death will no longer reign over us. Hell does not have dominion. Satan does not have dominion. No longer are we tempted by our own flesh or tempted by the world. None of this will happen anymore. That is the way and the sense in which we will receive fully what was promised. Abraham looked to this, Isaac and Jacob looked to this, Moses looked to this, David looked to this, all of the prophets and the apostles, the saints of the Old Testament, they all looked to this, this ultimate fruition of their faith. What was promised. He tells us that this is for us. This eternal inheritance is for us. It is something that God puts forth in front of us so that we are joyful, we are hopeful, we're not discouraged. We don't get bewildered by everything that happens around us because our comfort, our consolation, our peace, our endurance comes from this hope that he has put before us. This promise of eternal life with God forever and ever. This is the promise that He has given us. So we will receive that after we have endured by doing the will of God. This is what He puts out before us. This, is, re, this requires faith. It requires faith to believe in that which is unseen. God does, in many ways, often give us tangible examples of His faithfulness. He gives us tokens and physical examples many times of his goodness and faithfulness. But this, what we just described as being our experience for all eternity, we have not seen it. We can't put our hands on it. We can't tell the people of the world or tell our neighbor, listen, right here, what I have in my hand, this is what we will have for all eternity. It's not that way. It doesn't work that way. Not with this. It all requires faith in what God said. So this is why, just as in the past God was good to us, God was faithful to us, God changed us, God redeemed us, God performed miracles, both in the Bible and occasionally in our own life, he works out circumstances that we did not control that must have happened by the miraculous will of God. This way is the way that God shows us and prods us along to say, go towards what was promised. It's worth it. It's well worth it because eternal life is set before us. So then, in order to heighten, in order to increase this necessity, he tells us of verses 37 and 38. To increase the necessity or to increase the the, uh, urgency of what is necessary here, he tells us, for yet... In a very little while he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith and if he shrinks back my soul has no pleasure in him. This you can tell from your bibles that this is a quotation. It's a quotation from the Old Testament. It's a quotation from two passages. One passage very briefly which is Isaiah 26:20. 20. Isaiah 26:20 That's in verse 37. And then the rest of verse 37 and verse 38 comes from the prophet Habakkuk, Habakkuk 2, verses 3 and 4. Habakkuk 2, verses 3 and 4. These are the passages that he conflates or he brings together, quoting two passages with the basic point he wants to make. And by the way, if you consult your English Bible on these two passages the wording will be different because he is using the Greek translation of the Old Testament instead of the Hebrew Old Testament. He's using the Greek, which most of the New Testament does so. uses the Greek Old Testament translation instead of the original Hebrew translation. So if you are comparing and contrasting those passages with this one, that will be the reason for the differences. He's using the Greek Old Testament. So, in verse 37... For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. The one who is coming, the one who is coming, according to Matthew eleven three, is Jesus Christ. He is the coming one. He is the coming one. And this is the way it's described throughout the Old Testament, that he would come into the world um, until Shiloh comes, as it says in Genesis 49, verse 10. Until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Shiloh is another name for Christ. Until he comes, and then when he comes, these things will happen. And then in this case, notice, it says it's going to happen in a very little while. God here, he presents to us the urgency or the quickness of the return of Christ. He presents it this way in order to make us realize that we cannot be asleep. We cannot be practicing sin. We cannot be distracted with the cares of this life. We should not be distracted because if we are distracted, then we're not going to be looking at the urgency of this, that he's going to come in a little while. And if he's going to come in a little while, we better Be ready. We better be alert. We better not be asleep. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 describes it in this very way. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 1. Now as to the times and the epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night while they are saying, Peace and safety. Then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like birth pangs upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day should overtake you like a thief, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober, For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with Him. Therefore encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. This is why he says in a very little while, because the people of the world will be overcome as though a thief have, has come and robbed their house. Because the householder, the owner, doesn't know that the thief is going to come. Often we don't know, right? They come suddenly, they come unexpectedly. That's the way he describes unbelievers who don't look at the return of Christ in a very little while. They don't look at it that way. They think, oh no, nothing's gonna happen to me. Nothing's gonna overtake me. I'm safe, I'm secure, peace and safety. Everything is just fine with me. Nothing will happen, but then it will happen. Then another question or another issue that arises with verse 37 is that, is that it says, yet in a very little while, a very little while. Why does he say in a very little while when so far it's been 2000 years between his first coming and his second coming? He came in his first coming 2000 years ago and his second coming has yet to occur. Well, the answer to that is explained in 2nd Peter. 2nd Peter 2nd Peter chapter 3. 2nd Peter 3 verse 8. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which... The heavens will pass away with the roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Peter says in verses 8 and 9 that with God a day is as a thousand years. That is, God does not reckon the time as we reckon the time. That's all he means. He does not mean that one day to Us is uh, a thousand years to him or a thousand years to him is one day to us. He doesn't mean it that way. He's not saying God lives in time and space. He's saying that God doesn't reckon it the way we reckon it. He doesn't count it the way we count it. But what should we do? We should not think God is slow. We should not think he's slack. We should not think he is asleep or that he is busy with another planet or something like that. Or that he's having a war or a fight with the other gods. Nothing like that. Nothing like that. And literally, there are people who believe those things. They believe those things. But that is not the case. He is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness. So don't count slowness in human terms. Don't think of it that way. Think of God being patient, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. He is patient and awaiting for all to come to repentance, all the elect to come to repentance. This is why he says, for yet in a very little while. So be ready. Then, verse 38, verse 38. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But my righteous one shall live by faith, from Habakkuk 2, verse 4. This is the fundamental premise for our salvation, that it is necessary for us, in order to be reckoned righteous, to have faith in Christ, whereby we live. We have eternal life only by faith in Christ. And if we have faith in Christ, then God counts us righteous, because Jesus is righteous. God made him who knew no sin to become the sin offering on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 We are righteous only because we have faith in Christ. Faith in Christ. This is how it happened to Abraham. This is how it happened to Habakkuk. This is how it happened to Moses. Faith in Christ. The righteousness of Christ apply to them, reckon to their account so that their sins are atoned. Their sins are covered. Their sins are done away with, taken away, driven out into a solitary place, like in Leviticus 16. One of the sacrificial animals was driven out or led out into a solitary place. This is a picture of what God does with our sins when we have faith in Christ. Now, I said... Abraham, Moses, and others. Here's an example of Moses putting faith in Christ. Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11:24. 11, Hebrews 11:24. By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill-treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Describing the faith and obedience of Moses, he says that he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. That is, when he turned 40 years old, Exodus chapter 2, when he turned 40 years old, he understood that it was necessary for him to determine the rest of his life, whether he was going to continue in the court of Pharaoh as the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter. Was he going to do that and stay there in luxury and peace and comfort or whether he was going to be the deliverer of the people of God out of slavery so that they could go to the land of Canaan and dwell there out of slavery? What was going to happen? And he, it says there in verse six, he was considering the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt for he was looking to the reward. He looked to the eternal reward, the great reward of Hebrews 10, 35. He says, which has a great reward. That was the great reward Moses had in front of him. And because of that, he considered the reproach of Christ, the death of Christ, the, the ignominious death, the shameful death of Christ on the cross is what he considered greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. He looked to the spiritual benefit, not the physical benefit. That's what Moses did. And in that same way, we must do, and if we don't do that, then there is no life. Verse 38 says, but my righteous one shall live by faith. It requires faith to be just like Moses. It requires faith to be just like Abraham. It requires faith just like, to be just like Paul or any other Believer, we must have faith in Christ. What he did on the cross to pay for our sins. Otherwise, there is no life. Only death awaits. And that's why he says in verse 38, And if he shrinks back, or we might say, But if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. God's saying, that I have no pleasure, I take no delight, I am displeased with that one who shrinks back, who falls back, who backslides, who turns away from Christ, who turns away from the truth, who says, yes, I've heard it, yes, I've believed it, perhaps temporarily, yes, I've lived it, perhaps temporarily, but now I'm going to turn away and move on. I don't believe that anymore. I don't care for that anymore. It's all hogwash to me. I don't want it. He shrinks back. Now, when someone shrinks back, falls back, turns away, falls away, when he does that, to what end? Verse 39 says, to destruction. To destruction. Those who shrink back to destruction. To destruction. If we shrink back, it leads to eternal destruction. It leads to eternal punishment. As we read earlier from Matthew 25, 46, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Or as 2 Thessalonians chapter one says, that they will experience eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. That's what awaits those who shrink back, who fall away, who don't persevere until the end, who do not endure, until the very end. That's why it's required, so that we are not destroyed. We should never, ever shrink back. We should plead with each other. We should pray for each other. We should admonish each other. We we should be talking to each other about these truths, because they are a matter of life and death. They are not trivial matters. They, They are not trinkets. But these are realities. These are matters of substance. Okay? This is why he's talking this way. We cannot shrink back. We must persevere. Cling on to this faith. Hold on to it until the very end of our life. Faith in Christ. Our whole soul depends on it. Now, why would someone shrink back? Why would someone shrink back? In this context, he has told us in verses 32 to 35, they might shrink back Because of persecution. They might shrink back because of persecution. They're worried about what other people will say to them and do to them. Because in some of their cases, their property was seized. Their property was seized. Their possessions were taken away from them. So that might cause them to shrink back. That might cause them to say, no, no, I want everybody to like me. I want everybody to want me. I want to be everybody's friend. I don't want them. To say slanderous things, nasty things against me. I don't want that to happen. And I, let alone, don't want anybody to physically harm me. I don't want them to touch my property. I don't want them to touch my family. I don't want them to touch me. So, I'm going to take the easy road. I'm going to do what I need to do. And I'm going to do whatever I need to do. I'm going to be practical and pragmatic about this. Because, after all, I don't want to die today. today. I don't want that to happen. So I'm going to be everybody's friend. I'm going to have everybody like me. And then, if you do that, then you're not trusting Christ. Right? And if you do that, then you are trusting in yourself. You're trusting in your own works. You're trusting in your own wisdom. You're trusting in your own ingenuity. You're trusting in your own ability to finagle and and work the situation for the desired result that you want. Are we supposed to do that? No, we're not supposed to do that. And all of this is rooted in, fundamentally, it's rooted in pride. Pride. I've got it figured out. I've I've got a better way. I've got a better way than God's way. And I'll work out my own dilemmas. I'll work out my own exigencies. I'll do it my way, not God's way. That's pride. And Isaiah says, in Isaiah uh, 51, he says, Who are you? That you are afraid of man who perishes. Who are you that you are afraid of man who perishes? That question is a question asking us, we who are timid, who are you that you think you're somebody great that you need people and you want people to like you so that they don't persecute you? You shouldn't be that way. Because when you do that, it's arising out of pride and it leads to Eternal destruction. You will shrink back to eternal destruction. May that not happen to you. And finally, he says in 39 But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. We have faith to the preserving of the soul. He is confident in his readers. He's confident in the recipients that they have been living godly in their life. They have a desire for the things of God. They are making progress in their faith. They are not uh, uh, regressing. They're not turning back. They're not going back to their old ways. They're not doing that, and which is good. And he's exhorting them and saying, we're not like that. Thankfully, we're not like that, but I don't want you to ever be like that. We're not like that. We are like those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. We're that way. The faith to the preserving of the soul. Notice how he describes it. What is the benefit of this faith? He's describing true faith, genuine faith. He's not describing false faith. He's describing true faith. This true faith preserves the soul. False faith is temporary. False faith sees persecution, sees hardship, sees uh, an undesirable outcome and says, I'm going to go back. I'm going to go be my own person. I'm not going to follow this. That's what false faith does. False faith also puts faith in God for the wrong reasons. Perhaps the true God, but the true God for the wrong reasons. False faith puts faith in God in order that we might have health and wealth that everything might be easy and breezy for us. That's what false faith does. It puts faith in God just so that God can be like a Santa Claus to us, so that God can be like a grandfather to us who doesn't punish us, who doesn't discipline us, but just gives us gifts as grandfathers do. This is the way false faith looks at God. But God is not that way. There are spiritual matters, there are weighty matters that are more important than our health and our, and our wealth. Yes, he will provide for us, but we must first seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and then all these things shall be added to you, Matthew 6, Seek his kingdom and his righteousness first, then we will have true faith. Also, there's another way in which faith is false. Faith is false that does not preserve the soul when it is in the wrong person, when it is in the wrong God. True faith is faith in Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, only faith in Him. It cannot be faith in Allah. It cannot be faith in Krishna. It cannot be faith in the false gods that are worshipped by Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, or any other cult that you might name. They don't believe in the true Jesus Christ. Muslims say they believe in Jesus, but they don't really believe in Jesus. Not the true Jesus. Everybody says they believe in Jesus. Everybody says they have faith. Everybody says they have the way for the next life. But we have to determine what true faith is. And ultimately, it comes to the object of our faith. Who is the object of our faith? Are we putting faith in the true biblical Jesus or a false Jesus? It does say in 2 Corinthians eleven three 3 to 4, that there is another Jesus, that there is a different spirit and a different gospel. They pop up and crop up all the time, like nasty weeds, bothersome weeds. They prop, uh, uh, come up all the time. That's the way false teachers are. They're all over the place, but we have to be aware and not believe in them. Believe in the true Jesus, not another Jesus the true one, the biblical Jesus. This is the faith to the preserving of the soul. Is that not what's most important? Is that not what's most important? To preserve our soul. Jesus taught us in Matthew 16. Jesus taught us in Matthew 16, 26, the importance of this very fact. Sixteen twenty-six. For what will a man be profited if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then recompense every man according to his deeds. There we have Matthew describing what we've just been studying. That it will... Be that Jesus will return. When he returns with his angels, it says he will recompense every man according to his deeds. Which man will we be? Will we be the one who believes in Christ, or will we be the one who doesn't believe in Christ? Isn't our soul worth it? What's the benefit of gaining the whole world now? Being the ruler of the world right now, If that were to be the case, what's the point of having that but not having your own self? Do you really love yourself? If you love yourself the way God expects you to love yourself, then you would believe in the gospel. Have faith to preserve your soul. That's what's required. And one last clarification we need to make. If you read verse 38, 38 and 39... How can we tell if we are of one group or another? And why does the Bible, why does the Bible use it like say it this way? He's addressing the church, right? He's addressing the people who are receiving it. Why does the Bible do it this way? Let's illustrate and explain by going to Matthew twenty-four, Matthew twenty-four, verse forty-five. Matthew twenty-four. And verse 45. We'll see that our Lord Jesus did it this very way. 24:45. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that evil slave says in his heart, my master is not coming for a long time and shall begin to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour which he does not know and shall cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. Weeping shall be there and the gnashing of teeth. Notice in this parable, Jesus has just one slave, one single individual slave, and there are two potential outcomes of this single slave. The one outcome is the good outcome, the positive one of verses 45 to 47. That slave who acts in accordance with his master's will in the absence of his master is called the faithful and sensible slave faithful and sensible slave. However, that same individual, he might be an evil slave. He might be an evil slave and he says, my master's not coming for a long time. He's not coming. So what can I do? I can party hardy. That's what he's saying. I can do whatever I want. I can exploit whoever I want. So what does he do? He beats his fellow slaves, eats and drinks with drunkards. And then the master will come when that slave doesn't expect it And if he is an evil slave, that master will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. Weeping shall be there in the mashing of teeth. When why is he a hypocrite? Because he's got a name. He's got a name that he belongs to the master, but he's not a true slave. He's got a name and he lives in that household. He mingles with the master, the good master, but he's not living up to the name. And that's what he's doing in Hebrews 10. Our apostle is telling us and teaching us that even though we all have the name Christian, we all have the name believer, we're all brothers and sisters, we're all in this family of God, like this, in the physical, tangible, visible family of God, in the local church. Not everyone who claims to be is really that. That's the point. So let's make sure that we endure until the very end. Shall we? He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.